All right, we are going to start. Thank you all for coming. Let's uh, begin with a prayer to ask God to help us to understand the text and then to be uh, um, glorifying Him as we spend this time together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We, we thank you for sufficient help. We pray that you may give us uh, uh, strength and clarity and also um, grace to understand your word and to be able to encourage one another. I pray for the younger ones who are here today. I pray that they may be uh, drawing near to you through the open way that Jesus has made through his sacrifice. I pray that all of us would be following this path and I pray that we pray that you may help us for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we are reading and studying the 15th chapter of the book of Mark and um, we are finishing the chapter today. Let me see. I'm going to be <coughs> reading again a section of the chapter. Uh, let's start in verse 21 and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Then we'll focus on the second half of the chapter with the uh, latter part of the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, or Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of skull, of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink. But he did not take it, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, The King of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says and he was numbered with the transgressors and those who passed by blasphemed him wagging their heads and saying aha you who destroy the temple and build it in three days save yourself and come down from the cross likewise the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said he saved others himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Laba, Lama, Sabachthani which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed, breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this, so that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Hoses and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Hoses observed where he was laid. So we've seen last week that uh, Jesus was crucified and when he was carried to the cross, when he was led to the cross, he was carrying his, uh, his cross, but at some point someone was compelled to take his cross, that was Simon of Cyrene. And we saw that uh, most likely he became a Christian. And this is what the early Christian tradition also says. And so we see that um, God can use any circumstance and something that we certainly do not expect to bring us in a circumstance where we would recognize that Jesus is our Savior and be saved. And not only him, but his uh, children. So they are mentioned in the book of Romans. And... Um, it's really amazing how he uh, was brought to salvation and also to suffer for Jesus in, in that particular day, on that particular day. Then we also saw that Jesus was six hours on the cross and uh, the first half there was full daylight and the second half there was darkness all over the land. And we'll talk about what that means today. Uh, so we then started to talk a little bit about why Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let me ask you again, so we can do a little review on one of the key things we talked about last week. Why did Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he losing faith at the last moment and he's not really a worthy savior? Why did he say that? To fulfill prophecy. To fulfill prophecy. So, uh, who can open up Psalm 22 and read the first verse for us, please? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
All right, so keep your finger in Psalm 22. But some people say, well, he's just reciting that verse, uh, but he's not actually meaning it. It's just that he had to say it. Well, I don't find that very convincing. Whatever he says, he believes it. And so why is he saying that he's forsaken of God? The, I think at that moment uh, is when he became sin and and uh, when he took on uh, the sins of all mankind and uh, there I, I can't imagine there would not be um, a, a an enormous feeling of something in, in the mind of Christ in that moment uh, where uh, it, it, it felt probably like abandonment. Uh, uh, it probably uh, uh, felt like maybe the only moment he ever had of where he was maybe not conscious of the Father in, in, that, in that moment where he took on sin because of sin. You know, not, not because of anything lacking in his divinity. I heard a sermon one time from a, a different preacher, um, but they pretty much said that that point in time was probably the only point in his life where he was actually separated from God. That like the feeling, that feeling of separation, yeah. because God can't be sin. So, but, but I think it's important to, to point out, and I'm sure that Jonas will. So I'm, I'm probably preaching the choir here that, that uh, the Father never abandoned him. He was right. never abandoned. No. Yeah, so there's never a separation between the Son and uh, the Father in the sense that um, God cannot be divided among Himself in the right. Trinity. But uh, there is a mystery as far as the humanity of Jesus that at that point He was forsaken of God. And we're not really given all the details as to how that works, uh, but He was forsaken of God. And that was because of our sin. That's right. Human body that hurts. Yes. Can you imagine those people that Jesus went through like that hurts? Like yeah. people spitting at you. You haven't done anything. Yeah. And then he's taking it all in, and God, he's so powerful, but he's not at that point. He's not using his divinity, and God the Father is not intervening either. So it's like, I mean, his humanity is completely. Yes, a wrath of all sin, even sin that hasn't been committed. So basically, Jesus didn't just um, die physically, he suffered the, the wrath of God for sin. So when he was in the garden, he prayed to the Father, Father, let this cup pass from me. Um, do you remember that? When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, and then he prayed that the cup would pass from him. And the cup is the cup of the wrath of God. And uh, he was not saying, I, I don't want to die physically. Uh, he was leading the, the charge going to Jerusalem in front of the disciples. He had said several times, I'm going to die, I'm going to lay down my life. But he was really dreading the wrath of God on the cross, that very point where he was forsaken of God. And uh, last week I made uh, the comment that um, he was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. And. Um, we are separated from God because of our sins, and uh, He took that uh, 
that punishment, although he was never a sinner and he was never anything but the sinless, spotless Son of God, he was treated as if he was a sinner. And we are never uh, perfect and sinless in this life, and yet we are treated as if we are righteous like Jesus. And so uh, let's read two verses that I referenced last week. Um, and I'll make a point that I mentioned last week, but I, I would like for us to look at the verses. So let's start with the verse we read last week, but uh, it, it's good to repeat it. Hebrews 13.5. So Hebrews 13.5, if you want to turn there, um, this is a promise that's given to us. It says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So God is telling us, Christians, we are never going to be forsaken of God. And never is never. It's reminiscent of John 10, when Jesus said, um, My sheep know my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So we will never perish, we will never be forsaken of God. And that's because Jesus was forsaken on the cross for us. So without Jesus, we are forsaken of God. We are separated from God. And that, that is something that happens when we, are, when we are born. The wicked goes straight from the womb, the Bible says. Which is just another way of saying, as soon as we are born, we are uh, sinners. And uh, we are... From, in, from conception, in fact, and uh, we need to be reunited with God. And uh, Jesus took that uh, uh, punishment for us. So God promised that He will never leave us. Now, some people say, but you can leave Him. And I want to show you that this is not true, very briefly, because uh, Jesus on the cross, and we'll talk more about that later today when we talk about the curtain. On the cross, Jesus did something very important about the new covenant. He basically inaugurated the new covenant by his blood. And you remember when we were uh, in the earlier chapters of Mark, it was the Last Supper. And Jesus in the Last Supper, he took the cup that was used for Passover and he changed the meaning to be the meaning of the, the, not the old covenant, but the new covenant with the Lord's Supper. So he took one of the cups of Passover and, and he said, now, this is the cup of the new covenant uh, poured out for many, the cup in my blood. And so now, remembering that we are connecting the dots here because this is the new covenant and there is a key, key moment in the inauguration of the new covenant. Then we turn to Jeremiah 32, 40. And we see, we see what happens to the members of the New Covenant. The members of the New Covenant are different from the members of the Old Covenant. So the Old Covenant was also inaugurated with blood, but it was inaugurated with the blood of animals. And in the Old Covenant, did you have to be saved to be part of the Old Covenant? Nope. <clears throat> you didn't have to be saved. You had, you had to be circumcised and to be part of uh, the people of Israel or the proselytes who wanted to join. And so they were, for the most part, unbelievers in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, it is different. 
So in Jeremiah 32, 40, it says, I will cut out an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them. So that's the first part we just saw in Hebrews. And now look at this, to do them good. I will not turn away. I will always do them good. And then look at what happens inside the believer with the spirit of the new covenant. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me or they will never depart from me. So you see, people think that God can leave the believers if he sins too much or if he sins in a way that's uh, egregious. And they are making God less wonderful than he is. And so they, they don't see God as, as beautiful and uh, faithful as he is. And then they say, um, well, but you can turn away from him. And again, they don't realize how marvelous the regeneration work of the Spirit is, where when you are part of the new covenant, you're never going to turn away from God. Why? Because he puts a fear and a love for him in you so that you are never going to be leaving. And that's the new covenant. In the new covenant, we have better promises, we have a better mediator, and we have a transformation that's the same for all the members of the new covenant, and none of them is ever lost. That's beautiful. So this is all that happens when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken in our place. And because of that, we will never be forsaken. We are given the gift of uh, faith and repentance and we are baptized by the Holy Spirit and we will never depart from him. We will never forsake him because Jesus was forsaken for us. So it's, it's marvelous. Yeah, and uh, what you quoted in Jeremiah, is, is a, we, we've been talking on Monday nights about that's an example of God's common grace has, has no saving uh, it's not salvific uh, and it's to everybody it's to believers and unbelievers and and uh, and he's holding back his wrath uh, you know in, in his common grace but now now what you're uh, teaching today in Mark is, is saving grace uh, for the believer right uh, which is why Another reason we can't turn away, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's from God and not from us. Amen. All right, so then I have plenty of questions today. So I turn to a question. I Again, last week I asked it, but we did not cover all the aspects. And it's very important we do because it's going to actually explain the other verses we see. And it's going to have a lot of applications. So why did the centurion say, truly this man was the son of God? So we are going to read a couple passages to get the full picture of actually all the things that happened. Because sometimes we don't want to do this because this is the book of Mark, we're not looking at John. But in some cases, if you don't look at the other passages, you really don't see why certain things are mentioned. So we are going to look at some other uh, passages right now. So first, let's turn to, let's turn to Matthew 27. And uh, I'm going to read verses 51 until 54. All right. And remember, this is all because we are wondering how come when Jesus passed away, when Jesus surrendered and yielded his life, voluntarily decided to die only after six hours of crucifixion, even though it would take up to four days, perhaps even more, but typically four days for most people. He died early. Why? Uh, and so the centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, 27, 51 in the book of Matthew. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep i.e. they were dead were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they entered the holy city and appeared to many now as for the centurion and those who were with him keeping God over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the other things that were happening they became extremely frightened and said truly this was the Son of God now we turn to another passage and that's in um, Luke 23 47 Luke 23 47 Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, This man was in fact innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, after watching what had happened, began to return home, beating their chests. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. So we stop here. Your turn. So why did the centurion say? See, when you read the Bible, you want to ask questions. That's interesting. Why is he saying that? Okay, so how does that fit with that passage? You want to ask questions. That's the best way to study, to have. raise questions and interrogate the text and then see how the text answers with the other passages that may shed light. So why did he say that? So why this Roman centurion, that is someone who was in charge of a hundred soldiers, who is really uh, one of the key members of the Roman army, who is in charge of what's happening here, why when he sees Jesus dying, he's seen hundreds of people killed in this way, and then he says, truly this man was the son of God. Why does he react like that? Do you have any idea? The group over there. Come on, you must have some thoughts. All right, try something. I, I'm, I'm listening, I'm waiting. If you don't know, you can say I don't know, but if you have any idea, just shout it out. Well, in verse 40, uh, in Luke 24, verse um, 44, it says, And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two. Um, so there's like many things that very surprising that happens. Like I can't remember well, the six hours, like 1 p.m. or something like that. Uh, so the fact that uh, the sun was not up and it was obscured, it wasn't like and in the context it's not like okay there was clouds hiding the sun it's like it was obscured okay uh, so very good it's like darkness of like Egypt plague you know and that's not usual and then uh, you were saying that they probably don't know about the veil but I don't know like maybe there was crowd in the city that the veil was torn uh, you, you, we cannot be sure about that because it's written here uh, as like if that was had something to do with it and that they're saying it right now 
the it was obscured and the veil of the sanctuary was torn. So. Okay, that's great. Let me explain something more that you just uh, very well commented on. Okay, so it's actually noon. It's a bit like here. At noon, it's bright. And some people have tried to explain it away, saying it was an eclipse. It's not, because uh, Passover was uh, the next day, and that was usually happening on a full moon. It's definitely not an eclipse. So it's supposed to be super bright in the middle of the day. All of a sudden, lights, the lights go out. What's going on? It's never happened in my whole life. Those things don't happen. Out of the blue, darkness all over the land. And not only that, the text says from noon until the sixth hour, until the ninth hour. So it's not like it progressively turned out, you know, it's like the light is completely uh, disappearing and then it reappears as soon as Jesus is, uh, has uh, surrendered his life and cried out, it is finished. So this is utterly shocking, a miracle. And if you are any pagan at the time, any Roman, you must be thinking, God, all the gods, but of course he is the king of the Jews. The, the religion of the Jews is well known in Israel. And the centurions must know something about Judaism. And so this God must be very upset about what we're doing to this man who is claiming to be the king of the Jews. And uh, so this is exactly, in my opinion, reminiscent to the plagues of Egypt. So in, in Egypt, you remember, Moses is commissioned by God to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go, and Pharaoh doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to let about two million of uh, free uh, labor to go out, and so he doesn't want, and he says no, time and time again. So God sends plagues. He sends multiple catastrophes. And you know what's the ninth? The ninth is darkness all over the land except on the people of God, if I remember correctly. And what is the tenth one? The death of the firstborn, the firstborn sons. And so here we have the light go out, and right after that, the Son of God dies for the sins of the world. It's amazing, amazing. But if that was not enough, it's not the only thing that happened. Look, if there was an earthquake right now, we would all pay attention. It will be really remarkable it's not every day and then if it's to the point where I mean there are rocks it's outside here uh, at, this, at the time of the crucifixion there are you know there is the um, there is Golgotha there must be rocks everywhere and the rocks are split I mean this is shocking you don't split the rock without the major major um, um, amounts of energy and so all that is happening all at the same time what else do we see yeah, the earthquake and something else. What's that? The curtain is torn in two, so we hold this one for a little bit uh, later. Something else. Okay, we read it in Luke twenty-three, I believe. When he cried out, cried out with a loud voice. Okay, so let's talk about this one. Um, so I, I'll repeat a little bit what I said last week. Basically, Jesus said in John ten. 11, 17 through 19, the, lay, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down 
of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And in Matthew 27, 49-50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And in Luke 23 and Mark, we saw that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he breathed his last. So what happened is that Jesus just finished bearing the sins of the world, all the people of God. And uh, he said, it is finished. He said, it is finished. And then he prays to the Father and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I made the, 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 the comment last week that you and I and everyone on earth, we are two parts. We are material and immaterial. People who are not Christians in the world today, they want to tell you you're just a, a, a beautiful organization of dust. That is not true. We're not just matter. We are a body, but we are also a spirit or a soul. And so um, Jesus, when he says to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's basically saying that he is ready to die right now. He's finished his mission. He has, he has had the victory over all the sins and he bore all the wrath of God. He paid it in full and now he doesn't have to stay any more second on the cross. And he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just like he had said in John 10, I have authority to lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. Nobody can come and kill me. I have full authority. Now it's the time to die. And I'm done. I pray to the Father. And the Father, who is the Father of spirits, according to Hebrews, takes the spirit and uh, Jesus passes out. And not only that, he passes out with a mighty cry. Perhaps it was, it is finished. Perhaps it's another one. But the point is, he cries like a man who has a ton of strength left in his bones. And that's not, that's not normal. The centurion, the whole point of the crucifixion was to force people to live in a terrible, tortured way for days. They wished to die. They couldn't die. And Jesus decides, now it's over. And he dies. And the text we read, it says, when the centurion saw the way he breathed his last, he's seen hundreds of cru crucifixions. People linger for days, days. And he just says, it is finished, Father, take my spirit. And he dies on the spot. Amazing. So he realizes nobody can control his life like that. That doesn't work like that. And he is utterly shocked. And he realizes, among the other things, earthquake, uh, the rocks, the light, he realizes this is the Son of God, this man was innocent. He probably said the two things. And some gospel writers record one part, the other record another part. But not only that, we, we actually read in the text that there were resurrections. I mean, can you imagine that? He dies and then people come out of the grave. This is amazing. It's a foretaste of Christ's second coming, where he has full victory over death. And there's no more death, no more crying, no more pain. And people are raised to eternal life. It's a, and and it's, it's just, can you, just, can you picture this? We are outside of the wall of Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. Uh, we are uh, in Golgotha. He's crucified outside the city because he's bearing the uncleanness of the world. 
and outside of the city were what? Were cemeteries. The Jews were buried. So now there's Jesus on the cross, there's a mighty crowd, and there are some people buried everywhere, and then he dies and people come out of the graves. Of course he's going to say, this is the Son of God. And don't you see in the text we read, the crowd, the people who were cheering, crucify him, come out of the cross, show us a sign. They were just taunting him all the way to the end. The crowd comes back and they do what? They beat their chest. What have we done? What have we done? And then the parallel text we read also says it was not just the centurion, it was his whole soldier little um, uh, group or large group, I don't know. They all realized this is shocking. This is amazing. This is the Son of God. And Christian tradition uh, says that um, this centurion became a believer. He was saved. And Jesus, when he prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The Father answers. Simon of Cyrene, who comes to carry the cross, a Christian. His wife, his kids, the centurion, a Christian. Many people who saw kept coming back and were not done. There's more in the text. Jesus is amazing. He's amazing. Can we go back to the darkness just for a second? Yeah. Because uh, when you were explaining it, I, I, my, my mind wandered to another... Uh, thing where uh, we know that Jesus was put on trial by the, uh, by the uh, uh, Sanhedrin at night. This is when they were doing all these things to them. They were supposed to be, and, and their own law says they couldn't do that. They're supposed to be doing that in the daylight. And, and so here they are, you know, uh, condemning Christ in the darkness. And, and here's God getting the last word saying, I'll show you darkness, right? And uh, uh, that's what came to my mind when, uh, when you talk about darkness, it's like God is just saying, wait a minute, you know, let me show you what real darkness is. You know, you guys over here, you're, you're acting, you know, you know, pretty despicable and trying to hide this, you know, from me. And that's why they did it. Right. Right. And, uh, and God brings everything to light, but he did it through darkness. <laughs> so that was kind of an amazing uh, yeah. uh, thing that happened there. I read uh, an author this week, and maybe he's reading too much into the text, but I do find that uh, perhaps an indication of the compassion of God that when the wrath of God is on the sun, he, he turns the lights out. So no one sees the sun anymore. No, no one is seeing him under this uh, terrible suffering. At any rate, people saw it was supernatural. Something unique happened. And uh, now let's turn our attention to the veil. We had someone mention that the veil was torn in two. And so uh, why was the curtain or the veil torn in two? First of all, uh, what, what is this curtain all about? Is it the curtain in any random house? No. No. So what curtain? Yes. The temple's curtain, which one? Yes? Exactly, that separated the holy of holies to the rest of the temple. So, when we see things like that, for good Bible uh, study principles, what we want to do is we want to track down the, the words. The Bible is... Uh, 
has internal consistency, so it's gonna tell us somewhere else what, what that really means, and we're gonna see it with a very um, good clarity. So first, we turn to Hebrews 8, verses 4 and 5. If someone can read for us Hebrews 8, verses 4 and 5, we are gonna see what's called Old Testament typology. Typology of the tabernacle. So, a quick way to explain typology is this. There's something that's a copy, and there's something that's a real thing. So that's what typology is. So in the Old Testament, you would have copies, and in the New Testament, you have the real thing. So let's read uh, Hebrews 8, 4, and 5, and we'll see that there is typology, or copy slash real, that's connected to the tabernacle or the... Um, tents like temple in the Old Testament. So someone can read for us, please? Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So what did you hear? What's a copy of a heavenly thing according to Hebrews uh, 8, 4, and 5? It's also a shadow. Copy and a shadow, yeah. Of the heavenly things. Like It's looked like the way that he's um, describing it is like there's something, the shadow, the copy, the type is earthly things that are physical things or earthly and then the real is comes from heaven correct and it's all about the tabernacle here so that's why he says see Moses was told you are going to do the tabernacle in this exact pattern why because this pattern is a copy and a shadow of the real thing or the body that shows the shadow <coughs> Okay, so then we keep reading in Hebrews, and uh, that's really because Hebrews is going to explain to us what happened in the gospel. You know, you might read, okay, the, the veil was torn in two. What does that have to do with anything? We, we read in the epistles what that actually means for us. So we read now in Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 5, about this, this temple or this tabernacle in the Old Testament, the one that Moses had to build according to the exact instructions and details that God had given. So we read a quick summary of what it was like. Verse 1, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place, the first part of the temple, where there was the first veil. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's staff which budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atoning cover. But about these things we cannot speak now in details. So he's saying, you remember the tabernacle? There was a table with the bread, the lampstands with the lights, and there was uh, the, the first veil, and you keep going, you second veil, you open, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And he's saying, I, I cannot explain all that in details, because he has a bigger point. What's the bigger point? 
Well, we go to chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and then we have our veil explained. We will see that the New Testament shows, uh, the New Covenant shows that Christ tore down the veil of his flesh to give us access to God. So this veil, uh, the first veil in the Old Testament, it was a veil that only one person could open to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for the sins of the people. And even that was a, uh, a copy because you had to repeat it every time, meaning the sins were not really removed. And so they had to redo it every year, but only one person could get in once a year. And that was the veil of the Old Testament. Now, verse 11, Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things having come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands. So you see, he's not talking about the copy made by hands like Moses did. He's talking about the real thing, the heavenly thing, that is not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. So here we see Christ is entering the real tabernacle that is heavenly, not of this creation. And he entered through his blood for eternal redemption, not something you have to do every year. Verse 19. <coughs> and we are going to be focusing on that for a little bit. So please turn to verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. So you see that? Do you see that? So the veil of the old covenant of the temple symbolized the real thing, which is the flesh of Jesus. And so what does it mean that the, the veil was torn in two in the temple when Jesus died? See, you just have to, to equate what the Bible equates. The Bible says the veil is the flesh of Jesus, the body of Jesus. So what does it mean that it was torn in two? Well, there's two things, isn't it? Like the first is the literally Jesus was was torn in, uh, when he was crucified. So the veil which symbolized Jesus was torn. That's the first thing. And the second is the fact that now there's no um, separation between us and God. That's great. Luca, you wanted to say something? Tell me. It meant that everybody could be with God. It meant that everybody can be with God. Yes. So Jesus died. His body was killed. He was, he was stoned, so to speak. He was killed so that there would be no more veil before you and God. There would be no more separation. Now you can have access to God. And it was torn from top to bottom in the tabernacle, in the temple. And that meant it was not done by any human being. It was done by God himself. And God took that veil and he tore it. It was as if God was taking uh, uh, the big list of all your sins. And then because Jesus died, he tears it apart. There is nothing that now stands between you and God. 
And see, that's why the text says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, verse 21, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the first application, and then I'll ask you what are the other ones we see, is this. Come to Jesus. Jesus died to tear this curtain in two to open wide the gates of heaven so now you can come he died forsaken so you can be forever with God never forsaken so come come to him in faith and repentance don't have any fear he says we can have confidence it's, op it's open now there's nothing that stands in the way you just have to go amen will you come we have to come. There's no other way. He says, it is finished. And now he says, if you come, uh, he will never uh, shut the door. You will come in and you will never be forsaken. So come. So in Hebrews 10, verses 22 and following, right? It says, come with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. So come. But what else does it mean? See, he says, because the veil was torn in two, this is what it means. So what does it mean? So it's in the text, 22 through 25. Just rephrase it and see how it applies. <coughs> How about the evil conscience piece? Someone wants to give a crack at that? We're, 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 how about what Pastor doing right now? Uh, Hebrews 10, oh, okay. 22. If someone wants to try. 22 through 25. Yeah, take a crack at that. He says, you don't have to have an evil conscience anymore. Why? Because it talks about cleansing. You see it? See, you don't have to have all those things that are just uh, harassing you and you're always thinking about the past and you're always having those things that linger over your life. Jesus opened, opened the way. Now you can be cleansed. You can be serving God with a clear conscience. And even the body. The idea is all of you. And then it says, verse 25, Go to church. He opened the way. Don't abandon like some people do. People who are showing by this in a lot of cases that they are Christians. Keep going. Come and then encourage other people. He has opened the veil. 
So then you can come and then encourage the other people. If you're part of the covenant, you have the spirit of the covenant, you have the gifts, and therefore you can encourage them. All right. You know, Jonas, I, I, I think that, sorry to interrupt, but I think that when we as believers, we uh, try to go back to the past because that's where we run to for some crazy kind of comfort, right? Uh, that, that's not from God. And, and you think about that, that's like trying to put the veil back. It's like trying to hang that curtain again. Uh-huh. You know? And, and I'll bet you, we don't know, maybe historians talked about it, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure the Jews may have thought, at least thought about trying to put that curtain back, right? And then, and then what did God do? He destroyed the temple, right? So it's like, you know, put the curtain back. That's why I think maybe that may have happened. <laughs> he said, okay, now you got no place to put the curtain because I'm, I'm taking the temple away now. Wow. Right? But, but, but I, I think that, you know, uh, just metaphorically speaking, we try to put that curtain back because we, we find comfort in, in some kind of uh, unspiritual way, in a, in a worldly way. And, and, uh, and, it, and it goes back to, to what you said with Jesus' word where it's finished. You know, why, why are you doing that? It's finished. I, I finished the work here. You know, I didn't get back down off the cross and and enter back into humanity. You know, and he could have done that, I guess, if he if, if he thought it wasn't finished, <laughs> right? But it was finished. So how come we're not finished in Christ? Amen. You know. Amen. Thanks for sharing. All right. So the the teaching was entitled the sacrifice and the burial of the son of God so we still have to go through the burial and we have a few verses so I'm gonna go through it and uh, you'll see they are very fascinating things so let's uh, read on there is a disciple who comes to take the body of Jesus who who is this uh, disciple Joseph correct good answer and uh, it says that what kind of a disciple was he Uh huh. Something else we see in John 19. Who can read John 19:38 for us? I'll tell you other things that we read in the other Gospels. He was a rich man. He was one of the, the members of the Sanhedrin, and um, he also opposed the crucifixion of Jesus. He he did not go along with it. Uh, it's written in um, in Luke 23. Who had not consented to their decision and action? And he was looking for the kingdom of God. You remember Pastor Grady said that maybe none of the people went uh, with the decision, uh, agreed with the decision? Well, there was Nicodemus who did not agree. He said, uh, in Allah, are we not supposed to have a fair trial? So he was trying to avoid him being um, treated in the way he did. And there was uh, Joseph of Arimathea among the Sanhedrin members who were like, we're not doing this. This is not right. There must have been other people. But at any rate, what do we learn in John 19.38? There is a keyword starts with an S about him. We're trying to picture who this man is. Now, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. So what kind of a disciple was he? A secret, a secret disciple. You see, you cannot be a secret disciple. You can't say, oh, I'm a Christian, I don't tell anybody. I don't talk about my faith to anyone. I hide it from people at school, at work. That doesn't work like that. You cannot be a secret disciple. At some point, you have to confess Jesus before men. Otherwise, he will not confess you before the Father in heaven, the Bible says. So you see, at some point, a real disciple is going to show his true colors. 
all right, fine, I'm a Christian. He comes out. And what does he do? He's one of the members of the Sanhedrin, so he is, he is risking big, going to Pilate to ask for the body. But he goes, he takes courage, as the Bible says in Mark 15. So he takes courage and he goes. And what does he do? He wants to bury Jesus. Crucified uh, criminals were not allowed to be buried by Roman law. They were just left to be eaten by the, their carcasses were eaten by vultures. And so it was disrespectful to the body. But you see, biblical Christianity respects the body because that also uh, connects to the person and there's the hope of resurrection. And so he doesn't want that happen to Jesus. He is ready to go and risk his neck to ask Pilate. And Pilate is surprised when he asks, what do you mean, Jesus is just been crucified like a couple of hours ago. And he has to ask the centurion, the very same person who becomes a Christian later on, do you mean to tell me he's already dead? Yeah, yeah, he's dead. So okay, fine, you take the body. So he takes the body, and what does he do? He uses his own carved out of a rock tomb. And tombs, those kinds of burial places, they were expensive. Uh, Abraham spent a great sum of money to purchase a tomb for his family in Genesis 23. And then <clears throat> we see the burial of the dead is central in the Old Testament the theology. There is uh, Job 19 who shows us the hope of resurrection. It says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. And just before that he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Because he lives, I will live also, just like the song says. And uh, in Hebrews 11, watch this, it says, Joseph by faith, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel that God had promised and gave orders concerning his bones. Promise me you'll take my bones to the land promised by God. And they did. In Exodus 13, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will certainly take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Genesis 50. 22, 26 uh, for reference. So he was brought and buried in Sekem, in the land that was uh, bought there. And we see this in Joshua 24:32. So we see that in the Old Testament, there was no way you, not, you were not going to bury your close ones. You were going to do that. And they were buried with their fathers. And it cost money. It was not a cheap thing. And um, so you see, Joseph of Arimathea, he wants to honor the Messiah. He is the disciple of Jesus, and now he comes out. By the way, the text also says Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who previously came by night, so nobody would see him. Now he comes by day. And also, we get to know that Nicodemus becomes a Christian. He is actually, he loses his house and he's killed. But now he lives forever with Jesus. So you see, those disciples, they cannot be secret. You cannot be a secret disciple. You have to come out. You have to be baptized. You have to confess before men. You are Christian. You will follow Jesus. You will not follow the world. You will not follow your fleshly desires. You will not follow the devil. You will follow Jesus. And they do. And he takes this tomb that was not going to be used for anybody in his family because it didn't work like that. It cost a fortune. And he's like, I'm going to have this generous gift from Jesus. He's going to be buried in my tomb that's right next in the garden, next to the crucifixion site. And he goes and he does that with his uh, body Nicodemus. And they took spices that were expensive and they just honored Jesus in his death. And like it says in Isaiah 53, he was taken and executed with the criminals, 
but he was buried with the rich. Something you cannot make up. You cannot control how you die. You cannot control what happens to your body when you're dead. But lo and behold, God is in control of everything. So Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb. And this man who gave a lot for that, he didn't even know a couple of days later the tomb would be empty, no trace of anything. He gets his tomb back. <laughs> That's the best investment. So you see that you cannot remain a secret disciple. You have to be ready to spend what you have for God. And uh, on that, we also note in passing that women, they followed him and they ministered to him, that is to Jesus, when he was on the earth. And so all of you ladies, you can also serve mightily and serve God in all the gifts that God gives you. And uh, God will be using you and you will be uh, remembered for what you've done. Jesus will honor that. And um, so we see that Jesus is buried in one of the key things. Because you see, the burial of Jesus, we can pass over it. We don't dare to pass over it. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, it says, This is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried according to the scriptures, and rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. The burial of Jesus is key to the gospel. And among other things, what it shows for sure is that Jesus really died. He really died because the Romans let uh, Joseph of Arimathea take the body away, and he really died because... He was going to really resurrect. That's what we will see with Pastor Grady next week, God's wedding. The resurrection of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise and honor. We thank you for this beautiful gospel account. And uh, Lord, help us all not to be secret disciples, but to come with the full assurance of faith. And Lord, to be uh, saved and to encourage uh, the Christians in the church, Maricopa Springs. And Lord, we thank you for the glorious Savior, your, your Son. Truly, He is the Son of God. Amen.